so who are we canceling today? You know what? It's the topic on everyone's mind. How about we cancel Elon Musk? I mean, evergreen. Evergreen. Uh, evergreen, but especially green right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're going to get into it. Hey, everyone. I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ash Klein. And you're listening to Cancel Me Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all of the panic around cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shitposting. So I want to start um, by thanking all of our listeners who have been patiently waiting and also all of our Patreons who have been continuing to support us while we have been on this surprise hiatus. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I. Yeah, I got a concussion a little bit ago. Um, it was fortunately not too bad of a one, but it really, really knocked me out down for the count for a bit. Um, finally, yeah, unfortunately, when you have a podcast and your producer goes down, you know, no show. If the if you're in a sausage factory and the sausage machine goes down, can't make no more sausage anymore. Are you comparing me to a sausage machine? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the one that makes the sausage here <laughs> i mean that's fair yeah no did not uh could not look at a screen for very long so listen, making a if, podcast listen if you're the sausage maker i'm like the pig guts that go into the sausage <laughs> oh my gosh this metaphor caitlin this metaphor <laughs> Anyway, on today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about Elon Musk buying Twitter. We hate it. Um, And then I am going to have, uh, I do an interview with someone who I've been wanting to have on the show for a very long time, just a very talented uh, novelist, uh, A.E. Osworth. So we'll get to that in a second. Um, But Caitlin, let's let's start with Elon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this guy, like... Uh, you know, he's, he's the son of, uh, South African, like blood, blood diamond miners, like not the miners, they own the mining company, right? So the guy was like born on third base and pretends that he hit a triple and he's a genius, but he's buying Twitter. He's buying Twitter. This is really scary for me personally, because and I hate to say this, but my livelihood depends on Twitter. Like, people don't follow me on other platforms outside of Twitter. I've tried to grow, like, a Twitch channel. I mean, this show is probably the second biggest platform that I have. Um, and we do all of our promotion on Twitter also. So, like, almost everything in my life revolves around having a Twitter presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and... uh the day we're recording, I asked people who follow me on Twitter, like, you know, I asked trans people who follow me on Twitter, what are your plans with the platform? And I'd say a good half of them said that they were going to leave. Um, mm. And just from a personal standpoint, like, that's really scary to me because those are all people who, you know, click on my articles and listen to our show. Mm-hmm. Um so this is potentially life upending for me personally, but I also think it's a disaster for trans people specifically who use Twitter. Now, 
our trans listeners will know this already. Um, but if you're not trans, like trans Twitter is a thing. Um, a lot of trans people, when they come out, and this happened to me, you get abandoned by most of your like pre-transition friends. Um, and I rebuilt my friend, you know, b- friendship base through Twitter. I mean, I met uh, my two best friends, three best friends through Twitter, really. Mm. Um, more than that, f- probably five best friends through Twitter uh, after I transitioned. And, and there's very few friends of mine from before my transition who I still keep in touch with. I'm really worried about what Elon Musk is going to do to trans Twitter. And can you talk a little bit about that and, and why, um, you know, the, the, the specific concerns you have about that? Yeah, so this is a guy who has been openly transphobic on the platform. He has mocked the idea of pronouns. He has made fun of trans people for a very long time. He frequently, you know, talks, he puts out right wing talking points having to do with trans people. And um, I, I worry about what having him in charge will do. Mm-hmm. Twitter do- already doesn't enforce their policies against transphobic abuse. But what if they were specifically endorsed? I read something earlier today that said that he wants to verify the identities, like the identification of every Twitter user, um, thinking that it will reduce toxicity or whatever. Ugh. You know, Facebook tried this and it was a disaster for transgender people. And I'll tell you yeah. why. Uh, when I first started my account, uh, my legal name was not Caitlin. <laughs> you know, I had my dead name, but I went by Caitlin on Twitter and professionally um, I started building my Twitter following for a good year and a half um, before I ever got a legal name change. So if I had been forced to use my legal name on Twitter back in 2016, I would not have a career. I simply would not have a career um, because I was closeted when I first started that. Uh, and and this happens all the time with trans people. Like we start building out who we are as a trans person unofficially. Every single one of us does. So if there's any sort of transition, or you're trying on, you know, they them pronouns, or maybe a different name, like the first place you're going to try to do that is on online. And I've heard from a bunch of uh, closeted trans people, stealth trans people, or people who are early in their transition who are very concerned about this real name policy that like what Facebook had. And Facebook knew it was a problem. I think it's still sometimes a problem that you can report somebody on Facebook for not using the real name simply if they're just a trans person. And if that happens on Twitter, like I don't foresee trans people even being on Twitter anymore. Like, and it'll take away one of the spaces where, you know, we make connections, uh, we meet friends there. Like, I, I've met, you know, trans people from all over the world. If that goes away, like, what does that do to the trans community? Do we find a different place to be? Like, will we still be as connected with the world? Like, I, I think about all of this stuff and like, 
I wrote an article. I'm ranting here and I apologize, but I wrote an article at the end of 2019 for Vox. It was about um, the Internet and how it made trans people visible and able to meet each other. It also enabled a lot of abuse against us. And I fear that with Musk taking over Twitter, it'll cease to be a useful place for trans people to congregate. I I really hope that you're wrong, but I think that based, you know, I think that there's a, a lot of reasonable reasons to be concerned about that. And especially given, you know, how uh, critical like Twitter is for your livelihood, um, your, your concern makes a lot of sense. I mean, I saw another trans advocate today. Some guy jumped in her mentions and was like, look, you're mentally ill. We're just trying to help. And it's not wrong or anything to say that. And soon we'll be allowed to actually tell you that. And it's like, these are the people that are being empowered through this move. Um, I think it's cowardly that the Twitter board is turning around to accept this like enhanced offer of cash. I read Jack Dorsey's going to make like $938 million off the deal. I think he's a fucking coward. I think he's a fucking coward. Like every single one of these capitalist scum have their like their buyout point where they will endorse anything as long as the money is right. It makes me sick to my stomach. Um, you know, do I want to cancel Twitter? No, I really don't. But, you know, that might be on the foreseeable future. Um, and of course, you know, we're not actually canceling things when we talk about this, but like Elon Musk has been quote unquote canceled before, but it's mostly because he's a dumbass. <laughs> like his hyperloop system is just a car tunnel. Like we invented this before cars were invented. Um, like, I don't think he has any pure intentions for buying this platform. I think he wants a tool to manipulate the stock price of his companies. I think he wants to enable people with his views to have more power on the platform. Yeah, I don't I don't want it's concerning that um I don't want Elon to have that kind of power. Uh I don't I don't think anyone should have that kind of power, but especially that guy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, no, it's really concerning to me, like, who kind of has power to shape the narratives, um, who has power to shape information and disinformation that's being spread around. And that's that's deeply concerning. Um, you know, I do, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of your like, not not just Caitlin, but a lot of like uh, creators and artists and people um, that, you know, we want to support uh, build their followings on Twitter. So we will we will see kind of how how things shift. But, you know, I'm hoping that, um, you know, a lot of people are saying like, oh, I'm going to go to Instagram. Oh, I'm going to. And it's like it's not like other social media platforms are better. Um, and like pretty much all the social media platforms, at least the big ones, are owned by like shitty people, um, which is pretty bleak. Um, and I don't know. I'm trying not to be so bleak. 
Um, but it's a little bleak. Uh, but we're yeah, it's a little bleak. Um, but I hope that you know people who are making good content and work like Caitlin are able to still still make that happen and trans Twitter continues to exist and but I'm not we're not we're not sure what what the future holds and we just I got I guess gotta wait and see and be concerned which is not not a fun place to be yeah uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> um just just gonna make noises because that's all I got I just got weird noises <laughs> do we want to get to the uh the interview yeah let's do it so i am so delighted to finally have ae osworth on the show i've been wanting to have them on for a minute um they're a good friend of mine a talented novelist a prolific writer on the internet um, and a teacher who will be a visiting assistant professor of fiction at the ohio state university this upcoming fall they're just a delightful human cultivating connection and community and came out last year with their debut novel. We are watching Eliza Bright, which is a finalist for the Oregon Book Award and longlisted for the Center for Fiction's first novel prize, the Brooklyn Public Library's Literary Prize, and the Tournament of Books. Austin's book is basically like a Gamergate 2.0 book that's a fast-paced thriller narrated by uh, collective voices from the internet, and it's just brilliant, fascinating, and really artfully written. Um, and there's just a lot of powerful observations and turn of phrases that I find absolutely delightful and insightful. And I think that uh, it's really relevant to our audience and some of the things that we talk about. So I'm so excited to have you on, Austin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And so Austin, I'm wondering if we could start kind of by talking a little bit about how We Are Watching Eliza Bright deals kind of with some of the themes that we might describe as cancel culture. Cool. So I first want to know, given that um, this show uh, has a has a definite stance on cancel culture and probably has its own working definition, sort of like what um, what are we defining here as cancel culture? Because I have what I have. We actually don't. We talk about how it's not a it's not a like clear thing that we have defined. And there are a lot of different and shifting definitions and what what actually is and the few ways that it actually does resonate and some of the ways that it's talked about that is not actually cancel culture. And so, you know, I I, I think that part of that is like your understanding and lens of, of cancel culture. So mostly then, um, I would say 90% of the time, things that people assign as cancel culture is um, simply folks who are unused to experiencing social consequences now experiencing social consequences. Um, and that I think is like 90% of what, like, what we talk about when we talk about cancel culture, which I think is really interesting because we tend to leave out the people who are actually experiencing undue consequences from cancel culture um, when we're talking about that. So for instance, my book is loosely based on Gamergate. Um, it's fictionalized. It does not, you know, include any of um, the actual events of Gamergate. Um, but when we talk about cancel culture, like we don't talk about, for instance, um, a mob of weaponized internet nerds running Zoe Quinn off of digital space. Like we don't talk about that as like actual cancellation. Um, we don't talk about Brianna Wu's 45 unique death threats 
when we talk about cancellation. What we do talk about is like um, Louis C.K. experiencing consequences for like five seconds and then no longer experiencing them. So that is my, like, I, I suppose sort of like smart ass cynical definition of cancel culture uh, because people have been experiencing consequences, social consequences for as long as people uh, have existed. And it's interesting that um, we're up in arms about experiencing social consequences now. I, I feel like it was predecessed by um, people talking about First Amendment free speech, mm. which is another thing that um, people use wrong all the time. Uh, <laughs> people mm -hmm. call out free speech um, and what they mean when they say that um, is that they should not experience consequences for having a shitty opinion. Um, but what that actually means is you shouldn't be jailed for having a shitty opinion um, or you shouldn't be jailed for having any opinion. Frankly, I'm a person who believes you just shouldn't be jailed. Um, but that is like where I like how I saw that evolve as we started out saying free speech, free speech. And now we're just being like cancel culture. Uh, it's cancellation. Does that answer your question? I Yes. I'm wondering if you want to talk at all about how that kind of relates to, to themes or some of the storyline in your book. Sure. Um, so <laughs> my book is uh, about Gamergate, but it's not, like I said, it's not a recounting. It's a fictionalization. Um, one of the things that I did was move some of that up to 2016, immediately post the election of our 45th president. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, uh, because uh, what I believe is that Gamergate, um, and honestly, it's not even just what I believe at this point, like Steve Bannon has said it with his mouth, um, that Gamergate gave rise to some of the digital tactics that helped Donald Trump get elected. Um, and that that's actually a strategy deployed by like political strategists at this point. Um, so in making that point, I moved all of the events up into um, a 2016 timeline um, and it's narrated not by any of the protagonists of the book, who are Eliza and her cohort of game design um, co-workers uh, at a game company that I made up called Fancy Dog Games. It's not narrated by any of them. Um, it is narrated by the subreddit dedicated to playing the game that they make. Um, and that subreddit largely dislikes the protagonists and likes the antagonists in the story. Um, so the way that, so I want to ask you about your collective voice. So I'm going to interrupt. Oh, sure. Yeah. Interrupt. I'll talk about this for a million years. <laughs> <laughs> I love the collective voices. Um, so yeah, I think that, um, the thing that really struck me about this collective voice is it, um, it gives competitive realities as you're reading the book. There's different information. There's different ways to interpret the events. And so as a reader, you don't fully know the truth of everything going on. And I'm wondering what you were trying to do and say about the internet and misinformation by taking that approach, because I found it to be so interesting. And somehow, even though you don't know 100% what's going on, the book is still like really fast paced and compelling. And you know, all the things you need to know to follow it. And I just found I just found that really interesting. Um, so in terms of like, what I'm saying about the internet, and this is how it sort of like directly relates into cancel culture is that one of the things that I think that we're thinking about when we think about cancel culture isn't just local social consequences, but it is it expands past the boundaries of where you are in your present physical life. 
So it's not like your friend group having a beef with you. It's not your neighbors having a beef with you. Um, all of a sudden that scope is widened to the internet, which has not, it does not have the same physical boundaries. I won't say has no physical boundaries um, because we know that policy in different countries absolutely creates physical boundaries um, that sort of project itself onto the internet. But it has fewer physical boundaries than, say, like, if I walked out my door right now and walked down the street, um, I cannot suddenly teleport to France in the same way. So um, one of the things that I was trying to say with that collective narration is something about parasocial relationship um, and the kinds of relationships that ultimately, like, don't impact you if you're just walking around, but do impact you as soon as they get out of control. And in this case, um, people who feel that they have a relationship with Eliza, in this case, an antagonistic relationship with mm. Eliza, begin to invade her life. Um, and we see that over and over again, actually, um, in both the positive parasocial relationship, like someone thinks that they're friends with you, even though you've never met them and you don't know who they are, um, because they have access to an amount of information about your life, um, or in this case, the negative, the someone who thinks that, you know, they're your mortal enemy, uh, even though they've never actually encountered you in a physical space. And parasocial relationships in any respect, regardless of their outcome, regardless of like their, um, their emotional tenor, all of those freak me out a lot. <laughs> and so that's what I was exploring um, in this case uh, with We Are Watching Eliza Bright. These are people who project a lot of intention and emotion and sometimes thoughts and actions onto people they do not actually know and people they cannot actually witness doing those actions. So there's a lot of imagined stuff. Um, and the way that I arrived at that was actually, um, I'm about to out myself as a huge fucking nerd. Oh, can I cuss on this? Yeah. Oh, all you want. Awesome. I'm about to out myself as a huge fucking nerd because at, at the beginning of writing this, I was playing with like surveillance, which is another thing that freaks me out. Um, and I tend to write about stuff that freaks me out. And so I was like, oh, maybe they're using cameras to watch what like the protagonists are doing. Um, I did a lot of research into like how people hack the cameras on your computer, which I don't recommend doing that research. It's going to freak you out. Um, and I was like trying to write it from that perspective. Uh, and then the Dungeons and Dragons internet TV show that I have watched since its inception, Critical Role, um, <laughs> had a schism in its cast and a cast member left the cast. And this seems completely unrelated, except what they did, how they handled it, was two sort of members of Critical Role uh, got on a camera um, and said to the internet, you know, so-and-so has left the cast. We appreciate privacy during this time and we ask you not to speculate. Um, so they turned to the internet, which Critical Role has a massive fan base. It's huge. Um, and that fan base is like rabid in its support and is actually way nice. Um, it's got a reputation for being extremely kind. So it's absolutely like not a Gamergate kind of fandom, mm -hmm. but it is still human people. Um, and they have just been asked not to speculate. Part of the appeal of Critical Role is watching this friend group be friends. Um, and so people have a lot of parasocial relationship with these cast members. Mm. And I was like, wait a fucking second here. And so I went and I watched how the internet talked about and speculated about 
the schism. So it's not it was that the actual inspiration for this was like actually not about Gamergate at all, mm-hmm. and actually with people who are way nicer um, than the Gamergaters, uh, but they still had the impulse to project all of this as if they had been in that room when that decision had been made, um, as if they had intimate knowledge of mm. anything. And they were like citing things on the stream to like prove their point. And I just popped me my popcorn and I watched the internet have a meltdown. Um, and I did not, you know, pay attention to like language. Like I said, these characters that I wrote are very different than the community that I was like, observing Mm -hmm. and a community that like I feel fine like talking about being a part of (laughs) but the way that they constructed a myth based on these real people um it was almost like writing a fan fiction about real human beings so strange (laughs) it's so weird (laughs) like you guys do not know these people (laughs) so as someone who is in right like you are um, an author, you write stuff on the internet, um, you sometimes write personal stuff on the internet. Um, like, how do you navigate or how do you think about kind of having boundaries and parasocial relationships as it relates to yourself and wh- what you share or how you engage? So I think one of the interesting things, like just about me as a human is because parasocial relationships freak me out so bad. Um, I sort of have the blinder up on them. Like I, I really disregard when people are over familiar with me. Mm. Um, cause I'm like, Nope, no, thank you. <laughs> we will not be doing that. Um, and so people can like do what they do. And I love when people reach out and say they like something I wrote, like, that's not weird. Um, I am on the internet. I am replying like that is like part of the way that I move through the world. I'm a millennial. I grew up with the internet. Um, and so I'm actually pretty comfortable in that space. Um, but if people get like over familiar about it or apply something that I say in my writing to my life, mm. um, I just sort of like eat it uh, for my own psychological well-being. Because the thing about nonfiction is that, or at least the kind of nonfiction that I write on the internet, is that when I am portraying something that happened in my life, I am making a selection about how I portray it um, as a piece of art. And Mm. so I am not including every single thing that happened. I am not including every single feeling that I felt about it. Like I have boundaries in my writing Mm. about what I feel comfortable disclosing or what I feel comfortable making into a piece. In that sense, like I'm aware, deeply aware that um, when people approach me with that kind of energy, bringing something that I've written and applying it to like how I actually move through the world, that they only have a facet of me, mm-hmm. um, a sort of projected persona that I used for art making. Um, and having that internal boundary like really helps me move through the world that way. Um, and it's honestly like, if you are a person reading a lot of nonfiction, um, I highly recommend keeping that in mind as you move through the world and talk to the people whose writing you enjoy. Um, is that the nonfiction that you've read is constructed. It is also probably much older um, than you think. Um, Many folks are working on pieces for a much longer time, like then would be made clear um, in terms of having read it. And so how that person even talks about how they remember something or how they felt about remembering it, that might be super different 
than what they think or feel about it now. Because I know that when I'm writing nonfiction, like sometimes I'll take something that I wrote like two years ago and put it into a piece that's more current and write to what I was feeling um, and stay true to that person's experience when I'm writing. Um, But it's not actually like what is happening for me at the moment. Uh, I love that explanation and insight because that's something that I think about a lot about how like there's a lot projected onto a lot of us who live online and who we are and how we live our lives um, or who, who did I say live online? Who- I think live online is actually accurate to be perfectly honest. Like I'm trying to live less online right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, I, I guess my point in saying like, I think that's actually accurate is that I don't really think that there's a boundary between like online space and our real lives in the in the way that we might hope at least or in the way that we might imagine Mm. like it is just part of how we move through the world um and so yeah digital space has different rules Mm. has a different magnitude but like we are living our lives and part of those lives are lived online and that is just true for everyone who is connected at the moment sorry that's it. My my big soapbox. No, please. I could listen to you talk all day. All and day. And unfortunately for everyone around me, I could talk all day. Um, <laughs> but like my my big soapbox with this book is that digital space is not fake life. Digital space is real life. I really resist using like in real life IRL uh, to describe physical space because I don't think that that's accurate. It's all real life. Hmm. It is, it, it's got different rules. It's got different um, mechanisms for existence. Um, but the consequences of things online are actually just as real as the consequences of things offline. And I think that's how you determine reality. Um, if the consequences are real, it's reality. So there's another collective voice in your book that I wanted to talk about, and that is of this like queer trans community that, you know, helps Eliza um, kind of hide from from the subreddit misogynistic bros. And, you know, one thing that I love about this voice or that I've been thinking about a lot lately is how like, uh, or that I've been thinking about is how like messy and imperfect it is in some ways. Like this voice is a group of folks who live in a collective called the sisterhood spelled with an X, which I think is reminiscent of women spelled with an X, which we, I think all cringe at so hard. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, it's just one example of the ways that, that this collective is messy and imperfect. And I've been thinking a lot about that and about how in, you know, in community, we expect everybody to be perfect to have no messiness, to have no flaws, to have no growing to do. And one of the things that when we we are in community is that, you know, there's a diversity of experiences and opinions and point of views and, and stuff. And so like, that's, that's kind of my lens and kind of how I was kind of thinking about this piece. But I was wondering, like, was this something that you were thinking about as you were writing the book? And how have your like kind of thoughts about community and messiness and community um, you know, where were they when you wrote this book? How have they changed over time, especially with like all of the kind of quote unquote discourse we're seeing? Like, like, yeah, how do you how do you how do you think about all that? Um, so I have an immense patience for people's flaws. Um, and 
I hope that people have an immense patience for mine because I've got many. Um, and the Sixterhood um, is what's funny about the Sixterhood is, yeah, they've got, you know, that very cringeworthy name um, and they're still my favorite part of the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they were my they were actually a late ad as a narrator. Um, they they were originally not narrators. Um, and it was actually my editor, Seema Mahanian, who was like, you have like a couple of things, like you have a logic hole here, which is that you say that the Redditors cannot imagine um, the inside of the warehouse that the Sixterhood occupy. And yet the Redditors continue to narrate and most of their narration is based in imagination. So there's plot hole. Um, and also the Reddit narrators are a little painful to spend 419 straight pages with um because they're pretty misogynistic and racist uh, <laughs> and homophobic in parts and transphobic in parts and like they're not excellent and you know given those two things together what happens if the sixterhood narrates everything that happens inside the warehouse and I was like oh hell yeah Seema that is an amazing idea I'm 100% executing that right now um, because I had also been having sort of a crisis of conscience um, about what I was saying about community and about the internet. Um, mm. Having now written 419 pages of just the Redditors. And I was like, you know, my experience of the internet is actually extremely connective. Um, it is, it has the potential to have these parasocial relationships that freak me out, um, have what I'll call honest, true cancellation <laughs> instead of like the cancellation that we frequently talk about where like you can really um, isolate someone uh, by, you know, disconnecting them um, and providing undue social consequence, outsized social consequence um, to something that they've, that they've just done. It has that potential, but like it also has the potential to, for instance, given that um, proximity is not required um, for community on the internet, it has the potential to be extremely connective for a, a, an amazing community tool, um, especially um, I think about like rural queers and where you just don't have as many people to connect with where you live. And, you know, how cool is it that the Internet exists and that you don't need to have as many people exactly where you live in order to have friendships, in order to have um, mentors, in order to have community. Um and so what exactly am I saying about the internet if I only have the Redditors? Um, and what exactly am I saying about community that it's this like, you know, monolithic, horrible thing um, that is engaging in this really harmful groupthink and this ostracizing practice? And like, is that I don't believe that about community. I actually do believe in the sort of like grand project of it and all its messiness um, and just striving for you know, connection and making our spaces better and more accessible. Um, and just, yeah. Uh, so the Sixterhood really came out of, you know, those two things combined. And they were added then as a narrator um, in the last year that I was working on the book um, with my editor after it had sold. And that means they got more fleshed out as I found their voice. Um, and the funny part is, like, we're talking about, like, oh, the messiness of community, like, they are imperfect. Um, but I really backed my way into the way that they talk. They have a really idiosyncratic prose style. 
Um, they capitalize everything that's important to them. They don't have any periods because they think it's a, it's fascistic to ask a sentence to entirely stop. Um, they, uh, are over superlative about the people that they love. Um, so they'll, they like I, the closest thing I like to say is it's kind of like Leslie Nope talking about Anne whenever they talk about Suzanne, <laughs> um, which is the character that, that is part of them that is in the set of protagonists. Um, and then eventually when they talk about Eliza as well. Um, and I did, I backed into that voice um, by getting on the phone with my editor and going, okay, how do we make these sound different? I'm going to make, opposite choices and I put opposite in quotes um because I don't track in binaries I just made sure to get as far away as I could um from the redditors so the sentences are super long and in fact have no periods in them at all the chapters are one giant run-on sentence and like basically like going okay the redditors speak in short sentences so the sixterhood will speak in long sentences the redditors um you know are really negative so the sixterhoods are going to be over superlative and so on and so forth. And then I rewrote two pages of the Sixterhood chapters with that voice um, and looked down at it and went, oh, fuck, this is how I text my friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting about that, this is where I cite Alexander Chi, um, who, wrote, who has written many, many amazing things. And if you have not yet encountered Alexander Chi's work, I suggest that you go do that <laughs> right now. Um, but one of the things that he wrote um, is an essay in Vulture called How to Unlearn Everything. Um, and it's about the sort of question of writing the other, which for me and the Redditors, that's what I'm doing. Um, mm. And it ends, though, with like, but what about the things in your life and in your community that you have not yet seen in fiction? Like, why are you not writing that? Um and that's sort of how I felt about this. I was almost mad at myself because mm. I had to back into my community's voice. Um, mm. I had to back into how we talk to each other because I'd never seen it in a novel. And so how was I to know that it belonged there? Um, I had never seen an example. Um, so I made it, but it took a minute to get that. Like that could have not happened with a couple of different events going just slightly differently, like it could have been the Redditors the whole time. Um, and that mm. frankly scares me a little um, and makes me sad and mad. But it is because of writers like Alexander Chi having written about that before that I'm like, oh, this is like not my problem. This is not a shortcoming of me. This is like what it means to exist as a novelist um, and exist as an artist trying to figure out how to represent both the self and the other. Um, in your books because when you're a novelist you have a lot of space and if you just write yourself 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 the whole time it gets a little boring um so <laughs> um you know everyone is contending with that to bring it back around to messiness and community I love my people community is the biggest blessing in my life um and I love these cringy weird narrators too um, they have some of my cringy parts in them. They have some of my friends' cringy parts in them. Um, I, you know, when the first, when the book first released, I would be getting texts from my friends, like, I laughed at this part because, like, it's too real. Um, oh my god, <laughs> so many parts. <laughs> specifically about the queer narrators, like, I, one of my friends here mm -hmm. says the best joke in the book and this is a spoiler, the best joke in the book is the solstice tree joke. 
like he was like it's the best one and it's because it's like too too much like what we do um, <laughs> so like the, I love my people and I hope that love comes across um, it also allowed me to find more compassion for the Redditors um, mm, when I really? added yeah and it, they're not an easy group to have compassion for they're, the way that I wrote them they're pretty shitty um, yeah. uh, but ultimately they also feel incredibly unsafe and even though that's not you know that's not something that based in a shared reality. That is something based in their own reality. Um, and it is why they do the things that they do is because they feel like um, if their, their territory is ceded, they don't have a space of safety. Um, and their territory is this game, is this digital world, um, is this place where um, they enjoy the supremacy that they're used to. And I was able to write them a little bit more modulated having um, added the sixth or head in um, because it did mm. increase my compassion for them. A difficult thing to do. A very difficult thing to do, but I feel like I have been on a journey in the last few months where I am trying to be less frustrated at individuals when they frustrate me or like smaller in like looking at the like larger systems at play that make people the way that they are because like because our world is so fucked up and that like contributes <laughs> to so much so much of the bullshit in our world so I appreciate that lens and that that framing I, I imagine that's a weird thing to talk about having compassion for these awful misogynistic bros yeah, and they are pretty yeah. terrible. They do some terrible things to the protagonists in the book as the book progresses. And I, like, won't spoil mm -hmm. all of them. Yeah. But, like, it's a pretty violent book. Um, but I keep coming back to, like, this is what this group of people does when they feel that their safety is threatened. They just don't understand um, that their safety isn't being threatened. Um that actually they get to much like as we were talking about cancel culture at the very beginning, like actually the consequences that they're experience, it's experiencing now are not consequences that actually impact their ability to not just survive, but kind of do what they want. Um, those, mm -hmm. they feel like they're going to do that because they're not used to experiencing these consequences um, and they're not used to um sharing space and they're not used to not feeling like they're in charge but that doesn't actually mean anything for the reality that we all share so they they have a fundamental misunderstanding about that and it's much easier when you think about it that way to be like well how many fundamental misunderstandings do i have um and how many fundamental misunderstandings my community have uh, I wish that like these narrators are based on people um, and on larger internet communities. And I sure do wish they would um, cut it the fuck out. Um, but it, it certainly made it easier to have compassion for them as I was writing them when the sixth or head came on in. I want to ask you a question about different realities, but I don't know what that question is. We can get there. We can get there together. Like, <laughs> I, 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 I teach. We can get there together. Uh, <laughs> so like um let me ask some questions then back to you to figure out what the question is um when you're talking about different realities um are you talking about for instance um different facets of the self that we project online 
or um, different community ideas of what is real or true. Which of which, that second one? That second one. Okay. I'm wondering, like, how how you apply that or think about that in moving through your life or like moving through the world, the the, the different realities and the ways that you know, all of our realities, are, we, there is a shared reality, but then there are individual realities that sometimes that are often wrong or like incorrect, but there are multiple truths too. And like, how do you kind of think about that as you move through the world? So, okay. So I'm going to talk about Boolean logic um, for a hot second. Um, Boolean logic is um, one of the languages of computers. It's what it's based on um, because it fits really easily into binary um, binary is, you know, zero or one, you have essentially two decimal places. Decimal is not even the right word. I'm really bungling this, um, explanation because decimal means 10 places. Um, but you, as- you essentially only have two spots for numbers, um, and only two numbers that they can be made out of zero or one. Um, and that is the language of computers because circuits either have electricity in them or they don't. Um, so closed or open, um, zero is closed, one is open. Um, and essentially that boils down to true or false. Um, something is either true or it's false in the language of computers. That is something that I didn't know I was working with at the beginning. Um, but as I analyzed the two narrators, um, together, as I figured out like both, what, what both of them were doing in the book, um, I realized, um, that I have three different kinds of material in the book. And they are essentially the three operators in Boolean logic. Um, and I promise this is going to come back around to shared reality in a hot second um, because it's dealing fundamentally with how we view truth um, or how we view falsehood. The Redditors represent the or operator. Um, so or operator means that this is true or that is true. And if either one is true, irrespective of the other, the code fires and something happens. And so the way that the Reddit narrators talk in the book is they say, okay, this happened or this happens um, or this happens or maybe this. Uh, and that's how they create their unreliability. And that's how they discuss what is real. The sixterhood um, is the opposite. So where, where, and that's that exercise that I was talking about where I was like, I'm going to make the farthest choice away. And it's how I stumbled upon this. The sixterhood <laughs> uses and. When they talk about reality, they say this is true and that is true Mm. and operator and operator means that both things have to be true for something to happen or all things strung between the and operators have to be true for the code to fire. Um, And so that's how they and those are two fundamentally different ways, not just of viewing events, but of viewing reality, like what is real to begin with. Mm. And then the last one is less relevant, but I'll just like stick it in there. And that's the null um, operator. And, um, I have no, at some points in the book, I have like, what is arguably no narrator and you get unmitigated G chats or emails, um, with no filter. Although we can talk a ton about, (laughs) I, in fact, I have talked a ton about epistolary forms and how that's still like not exactly no narrator. Um, but it's not relevant to the question at hand back to the, and and the or operators, um, that sort of central question boils down to um, the or operator as a modality of like scarcity. There has to be one truest truth. Something has to win. Mm. And the sixterhood operates with like an abundance mindset that there is all those truths are true. 
Now, I am talking about lived experience when I talk about this and not objective scientific fact, which is just, I think, a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in lived experience, I am much more a sixterhood guy. Um, <laughs> I am much more about the and operator. But I wouldn't have been able to tell you that um, before I wrote this and figured mm-hmm. out, okay, like there are some people who think that one truest truth has to win. And there are some people that think all of these are true at the same time. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that there's a million other ways to think about it. These are the two in my book. This is the two that I spent most of my time pouring my thoughts into. Um, and if given the choice, um, I want to be the and operator, the abundance mindset, the idea that all of these lived experiences can be true at once. Um, and sometimes that's really hard because you are only yeah. one person. Um, and so you only have the set of data that you have. Um, you only have the lens through which you view the world and the way that you walk through it. Um, but understanding that I want to be the and operator guy and I don't want to be the or operator guy. I don't want to inject winning and losing um, mm. into the way that people are just experiencing reality. Like, I think that's some bullshit. Um, has made it easier for me to, in the moments where I'm tempted or in the moments where my default setting, because we were all raised in, <laughs> we were all raised in this, you know, capitalist society that we're in right now. Um, and so winning and losing is like baked into my DNA in some places. In those moments where that happens, I can be like, actually, I don't endorse that. That was downloaded software. Um, and I can choose something different. Um that is not just the way that it works. Um, so that is, is that, does that answer the not question? Yeah, that you have? <laughs> yeah I love that. And I, I think I'm going to take that and think about that more and try to channel that in those moments that I have. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for, thank you for getting to that question with me. That was really fun to talk about. <laughs> uh, one last question. If you had the power to cancel something, what's something that just like, frustrates you or annoys you or obviously you know we all want to get rid of capitalism and prisons and like all of these these bigger systems things but something a little lower a little lighter i would like to cancel deer ticks (laughs) that shit serves those little shits don't serve a fucking purpose (laughs) they just give a bunch of diseases out And and they should go. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then I will enjoy nature so much more. Because the other thing about it is that, like, I attract deer ticks like other people attract mosquitoes. Oh, no. Yeah, I've had Lyme disease <laughs> two times. <laughs> like, oh, no. I, I, it sucks. Um, and so like, I enjoy an outside is the thing that I have discovered during this here pandemic. Um, but what I don't enjoy is that like, we, like, if I'm with anyone, they have zero ticks and I have six and, (laughs) (laughs) and I don't want to think about that when I'm outside, your ticks can go. Well, the cancel daddy is on it. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get rid of those deer ticks. Uh, Caitlin, I'm so glad that we finally had Austin on the show. How did you like that interview? I thought it was great. You did a great job. Thank you. Just like fishing for compliments over here. (laughs) 
Are you ready for some out-of-context cancellations? Yes. Okay. Um, we have a lot today. Wow. We, we, well, we, we have been on a little bit of a hiatus, so they've built up. True. People want to cancel stuff. Yeah. The cancel daddy has been MIA with a concussion, so there's a little extra canceling to do. Um, okay. So first, we are going to cancel everyone who was calling for increased police funding after the best funded police department in the country failed to prevent a mass shooting and then failed to apprehend the shooter. Um, That was in New York. Big mess. Yeah. The NYPD, did you know the NYPD has a bigger budget than the Ukrainian military? No, that's wild. Yeah. That's terrifying. (laughs) That's bad. Um, so defund the police, abolish them. Um, we don't need more. Uh, we don't need more police presence. That doesn't make anybody safe. <laughs> what a mess. Um, don't know why, but we're also going to cancel Seattle's mayor. And honestly, like m- most mayors are bad. So that sounds right. Oh, I'm guessing this one's probably police related also. Uh, well, then I'm very on board with the cancellation. One of our listeners wants to cancel imposter syndrome, and yes, please. Uh, imposter syndrome sucks. Yes, yes. Um, just there's no need for it. It's bullshit. Like any, honestly, like all you folks listening to this podcast who have imposter syndrome are like way better than a lot of the people who don't have imposter syndrome and are like confident as fuck. So just like be like, I don't know. Yeah, fuck that. Cancel that. Hey, I cancel it hey, for you. It's no longer hey, in your brain. The cancel daddy says you're amazing. Hey, right. Oliver, guess what? I have imposter syndrome. I cancel your imposter syndrome. You no longer have it. It's gone. It's been canceled. Did that work? No. <laughs> um, excuse me. Are you saying that I don't have the power to do that? Think again. Think again. Next, we're canceling food morality discourse. Please. I wanna I wanna cancel you too for not appreciating my tuna noodle casserole. Oh, okay. Okay. So before <laughs> before we started recording, Caitlin's like, I'm so excited. Tonight I'm gonna make a tuna noodle casserole. And I said, I'm not gonna yuck your yum. And that's all I have to say. Um and we discussed how tuna kind of freaks me out. Um, and how I wanted to cancel Tuna, but would not cancel Tuna because I love Caitlin and she likes Tuna. <laughs> and I support great. her right to eat whatever she wants, even though Tuna freaks me out. <laughs> we can cancel me. Sure. Cancel the cancel daddy. Well, Caitlin tried to do that, but then we realized she doesn't have that power because I'm still here on That's mic. True. You are the sausage maker. I am the sausage maker. <laughs> In fact, if I wanted, I could cancel you. I'm going to get you a cancel daddy. Uh, cancel me daddy mug and then have on the other side it's going to say producer cancel daddy sausage maker (laughs) (laughs) oh my lord oh my lord um okay uh someone also asked us to cancel elon musk which i feel like we've already covered today and over that one (laughs) um also cancel all the landlords which i feel like we've covered many times because landlords suck yeah i'm like in the process of moving Mm. and it's just awful we're also canceling the marketplace of ideas quote unquote oh my god what a what a like 
shitty, like, like moderate liberal dude bro thing to say. Because the, the, these people who believe in it the most, like, they they ha- they never have a defined time for when the marketplace rejects the idea. Like, there's no conditions in these people's heads where an idea can be rejected. But in a marketplace, you either buy something or you don't buy it. <laughs> right. And like, who controls the marketplace of ideas? People Elon with privilege Musk. and power. Yeah. People like Elon Musk. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> bad. It's bad. Um, Please let me take the next one. Okay. We are canceling the New York Times talking about cancellations. The New York Times is so bad at covering cancellations. You know who the New York Times should hire to write about cancel culture? Me? Caitlin Burns, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> the people they have writing about it, they just have like the most ridiculous takes and reporting and it's such a mess. Yeah, you know, but without them, we would have a lot less content for the show. Ah. <sighs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, here's the thing. Bad, bad things existing sustain this show. But I want to abolish all those things. Yeah, I just want to get with, rid of them all. It's the same with my journalism. Like, every time a transphobia, a big transphobia is done, I, like, rake in the money from different projects. And I feel so bad about it. <laughs> look, get that money. Get that money. But, like, yeah, no, it's it's fucked. Uh, the the capitalism's bad. Um, and and the last one, um, we're gonna cancel unicorn hunters, who are just I can't do it. I can't. It makes me. They frustrate me so much. Yeah, that seems like it'd be a bad time. In in my previous life as a cishet woman. Oh God. <laughs> in my previous life as a cishet woman. Uh-huh. Um, thank God that life is over. That part of me is done. <laughs> Um, I came across some like pre unicorn hunters. Uh-huh. So like basically like men seeking specifically like bisexual women mm-hmm. so they could find bisexual women yeah. to date and then they could become unicorn hunters. Yeah. Why? Why? Um that doesn't I'm not saying threesomes are bad. Threesomes are great. Ha, have a good time. Unicorn hunting's bad though. Anyway. <laughs> um that is all I'm gonna say about that. If you want something to be canceled, um, you can become a patron but and join our Discord sub- server, which is five dollars a month, to ask for your own cancellations. You also can get episodes early and your support helps us become a weekly show. You can join and learn about other perks at patreon.com slash cancel me daddy. Today's show was made by me, Oliver Ash Klein, and my fabulous co-host, Caitlin Burns. Daniel Peterschmidt made our theme song and Eden M.W. designed our graphics. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work, especially the members of our Canceler Hall of Fame, with the great power to cancel all of their enemies, Meg and Alice. We appreciate your support. Happy canceling! Happy canceling!